right, it's time for Baldry's Beat. Keith Baldry, Legislative Bureau Chief for Global News. Good morning, Keith. A little later than usual today. Appreciate your flexibility, because I know you had a prior commitment there earlier, so yeah. we just do a little later today. Yeah, that's fine. So that's cool. So we just had a, a full phone board there, callers really responding on this Uber Uber issue. So Uber has announced teen accounts. So if you're 13 years old now, that would be the minimum age to get an Uber account. It used to be 18. Mm-hmm. So the idea is, okay, you, your kid would be allowed to get into an Uber. And Uber is saying, well, we're putting in lots of safety provisions here. Only highly rated, very experienced drivers would be allowed to pick up a teen kid. Uh, you'd be able to request a female driver if that's what you want. Um, parents can monitor where the vehicle is in real time on the app. It'll be audio recording of the... There's all these safety measures brought in. But, you know, we had a ton of reaction to it, including from people saying, well, you know what? I, I, if I had a young a young daughter or something like that, I'm not sure I'd want, you know, them going in an Uber well, vehicle. Well, yeah, I think that would be a natural reaction, to yeah. particularly parents of, of young teenage girls. Yeah. Um, and Uber's a relatively new thing. It's yeah. still working out some of the kinks, and, we, and there have been, you know... Re- unfortunate incidents involving some Uber drivers, but there's also incidents involving taxi drivers too, and, or, or limousine services or anything. Um, so it's something that's evolving. But interesting, if you're if, you know, parent of a, of a young teenage girl, I doubt personally that I'd um, sign up to an account. But yeah. as they get older, you don't want your teenage kids getting in a car with someone who's been drinking. Well, and that's, that's the, the big thing. reason. You know, I, we used to have an account with an established taxi firm here in Victoria when my kids were growing up, as did other parents, and we trusted them, and we could use that account <coughs> if we thought uh, it was and you to- And you said, like, anytime you need a vehicle, a ride, yep. we can't, if I can't pick you up, take the, use this card, get a taxi. Yeah, yeah I think that's a good not, idea. As long as you're not coming in from Nanaimo or something. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and in fact, as in the capital, it's really hard to run up an expensive taxi bill because everything's yeah. so close. Yeah. Yeah, so I know a lot of parents who had a, had an account with an established, well-respected, uh, and experienced taxi firm here. But as, as I say, Uber is a new experiment. Well, that's the thing. The other thing, though, is, and another kind of level of layer of safeguard that's been brought in, is that the B.C. government, when they finally got around to allowing Uber, put in the requirement that you have to get this Class 4 driver's license, mm-hmm. basically the same as a taxi driver. Yep. So the requirements to be an Uber driver and a taxi driver are very similar. So I'm thinking to myself, would you be okay with your kid getting into a taxi? Maybe some, maybe some people would feel safer in a taxi than in an Uber. Well, the, but the, if they're required to have the same the guidelines, you just you just uh, let off the top with about all these precautions. They don't exist yeah. in a lot of the taxi accounts. Well, right, yeah, you, know, you can't yeah. necessarily request a female driver. Maybe some companies have changed, but it's an interesting issue. Yeah. It is, and uh, we had a lot of response to it. So if you want to call me on that again, go ahead when we uh, on the other side here. Okay, let's talk about what's going on. Election day in Alberta. Big so day. we've been talking about this. For- Envious of my global colleagues in Alberta. Election nights are always the most fun fun night on television. You think it's going to be close? I think it's going to be close in popular vote. Whether it's close on the seat count, i um, been checking a lot of analysis for the last few weeks, and it's interesting. You know, th- uh, 338.com, which is a sort of... A, polling analysis they've got it fairly neck and neck as does the there's been polls from main street abacus and janet brown all have the ucp party a slight edge over the ndp in terms of the popular vote where there seems to be consensus though is the election is going to be decided in calgary the ndp basically very strong in edmonton and its environs the ucp strongest in rural uh alberta the two parties split lethbridge but calgary um 
is really going to be decided. But the, the task for the NDP is monumental. They've got to basically win, I think, four-fifths of the seats in Calgary to uh, be able to achieve that magic 44-seat count, which would be – there's 87 seats. So 44 is a majority, technical majority. 45 is really one because you've got to appoint a speaker. But 44 is uh, pretty elusive for the NDP. It can get there, though. I mean, a lot of yeah. polling analysts and, and political science professors say, yeah, it can be done. Yeah. Um, just everything has to break the NDP's way tonight, and the odds of that happening are not good, but it can be done. Okay, they're voting right now as we speak in Alberta. Let's have a little listen to some sound from the campaign trail here. So you will hear from uh, Rachel Notley, the leader of the NDP, of course, the, the former uh, former premier, and also Alberta premier Danielle Smith running for re-election. Let's listen. It's a choice between moving Alberta forward and building a brighter future, or returning to the NDP's costly and failed policies. More than 750,000 people have already cast their ballots. That is a record, my friends. Okay, all right. So you heard Rachel Notley there at the end seemed to be quite fired up by the big turnout oh, at the advanced a, polls. So yeah. maybe she thinks that shows that she's got some momentum? Yep, she, and she's been drawing some pretty big crowds at these yeah. rallies in the last week or so. So, yeah. you know, and I've seen on Twitter a number of people who identify themselves as former campaign managers for the UC or the old Conservative Party of Alberta saying, no, they want nothing to do with Danielle Smith and the UCP. They're voting for the NDP. Now, a, a heck of a lot of those people would have to do that to yeah. move the needle here. So, um, but I think the NDP is going to have a much stronger showing than a lot of people thought. But is it good, big enough to actually win? I think the odds are against them. Isn't it? Doesn't it seem, though, like the momentum seems to be going the other way with, with uh, Danielle Smith and the UCP? Because if you think, I'm thinking about the polls pre-election, mm -hmm. and I seem to recall the NDP had a, a pretty good lead. Yeah leading up to this election and it look it sounds like Danielle Smith is caught up here and well, again the pollsters seem to be a little all over the place Main yeah. Street had the NDP winning I think just a few days ago uh, Abacus data's got the uh, conservative you know they had the NDP in the front at the beginning of the campaign yeah the last polls have the UCP in front right uh, Janet Brown who's an, made an Alberta pollster who's got a lot of high regard there she has the UCP up and we're talking four or five points yeah but on the seat count, you can't necessarily apply the popular vote in, in, uh, to a seat count. You go back to the 2017 election in, in B.C., where the Liberals had the most votes and the most seats, but they couldn't form a majority. Yeah, uh, I don't think that scenario is going to play out tonight because I don't think any of the other parties have a chance of winning a seat. Certainly don't, they don't seem to be polling well at all in any poll. So it's, it's a really a two-party race here, but it comes down to Calgary. Can NDP yeah. win a bunch of seats in Calgary? that the UCP currently hold. And they have to win a lot of seats. There. They do. Like, as you said in an earlier show, they don't have to run the table and Come win every single Calgary seat, but they need to win most of them yep. big time. A, a strong majority of them. Yeah. And again, um, the seat count, it would be interesting if Danielle Smith wins the majority, but her majority is greatly reduced. Yeah. That could be problematic for her. You've mm. talked before about having guests on saying, oh, the word is just, just get us over the finish line and we'll deal with her later. Well, if she comes in with 45 seats, you know, one more than a majority, um, questions about her leadership may arise. Yeah. A couple of things to watch tonight. Who wins, obviously. Right. But what the margin of victory is for UCP. Yes. I think it has to be fairly strong to guarantee her to be the leader next time around. So you're predicting that Conservatives will win tonight. Then. I always hate to predict, but I think, Come right, on now. I think the odds <laughs> favor a UCP victory. But I do not discount the possibility of an NDP squeaker. Yeah. They're not going to get 60 seats. 
by any by any stretch, but they could get mid forties, which is enough to form impos- a majority government. Impossible to call with real precision, but you know, I, I tend to think the same way as you. I think the United Conservative Party squeaks. It's back just in. whether enough of these old Peter Lougheed conservatives yeah. um, are going to vote uh, NDP. And it's interesting. Uh, conservative stalwarts like Ken Bossenkool used to be an aide here for Christy Clark. Yes, uh, he's making a lot of uh, getting a lot of attention for saying he's not going to vote for either of them. He says, I don't, it's asking me to choose between bad and worse. And he's not, he's not saying, I'm not telling you which is which. No, he's oh. obviously, he's a strong conservative, but he will not vote for Daniel Smith, but he's not going to vote for Rachel Notley. So who's he voting for? I don't think he's voting. Oh, he's, he's abstaining. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sounds like it. All right. Interesting. Okay. Well, we're watching that one closely tonight. Uh, we'll see what happens. Okay. Real quickly, Premier David Eby on the road. He's in on this Asia trade mission right in, now, right? In Tokyo as we speak. In Tokyo. Okay. And then he's also heading to Sing- Singapore. Heads to Seoul after uh, uh, Tokyo. Spends about three days in each place, three or four days. Yeah, right. And then he finishes the trip in Singapore. First BC Premier to visit Singapore. Singapore. I've been on trade missions before to, with Premiers to Asia. And you go to usually go to uh, Tokyo, Hong Kong, China, Korea. Well, for obvious reasons, Hong Kong and China are off the list. So they're gone. But they're being re- not necessarily being replaced. But Singapore is a new place for a BC Premier, and EB's targeting their housing policies. It's something he wants is it specifically now, to look at. Is it now politically impossible for a Canadian politician to visit China? I think so, yeah. for now. Yeah. Even though we still do tons of business with them. Oh, huge trading partner, right. no question. Yeah. Any container ship coming in to the port of Vancouver is filled oh, with yeah. a lot of goods from China. Let's listen to David Eby. Now, here he is talking about Singapore and, and the, what you just mentioned. He mentions housing here, and here's why he's going to Singapore. Let's listen. Their government uh, made the decision, uh, like our government is now, to be involved in ensuring there was housing for middle-income families in Singapore. The uh, idea that government sees housing as essential infrastructure for economic success, sees housing for middle-income people as being essential to the growth uh, and prosperity of the whole society. Okay, I'm just wondering, though, why he has to go to Singapore to learn about housing. Well, I think, housing. I think if you're over there, I guess that if you're going to pay to get to Asia, you might as well include a place that you haven't been before that has a unique housing strategy. So he's meaning with this, where the parallel is, is that Singapore has a state investment corporation that invests in housing. So the BC government established that billion dollar fund, if you recall, um, or half a billion dollar fund to uh, have housing projects um, evolve for middle and lower income people. And I think the model there is in Singapore. It'll be interesting what he brings back. Chris in Vancouver. Hi, Chris. Go ahead. Hi. Um, I visited Singapore a few years back pre-COVID, and they have no homelessness. It's perfect. I mean, I have family there, and uh, there's no complaints when it comes to uh, what we have here, the issues that we have here. But I'm just wondering why it took so long for him to realize that had, man, I should go to Singapore. What do you think they're doing differently over there that makes it, makes it better? Well, it, what it is, is an initiative. So they turn around and they, mind you, you know, it's all apartment buildings and there's quite a bit, you know, there. But it's an initiative to, you know, you get married, you turn around, you have uh, a family, so they want you to have a home. And then once you start paying for it, you end up owning that. I mean, mind okay. you, you're owning a condo, but you're still, you're in the market. So I, don't, I just don't understand why it took years for them to... And is it like, and is it like mostly social housing you're describing there? Like the government's involved in it? Is that yeah, right? It's social housing, but it's it's yeah. a, an upper class of social housing. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's not it's not what you see in Canada 
it's 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 very well maintained um parks for the the you know the families and the kids and stuff so i mean it's it's it's, it's working and it's working well for them so thank you chris it work well yes. for us. yeah thank you so it's very high density in Singapore, as you mentioned, mm. it's all apartment buildings, all condos. You don't see many single-family single, fa- single family detached dwellings. And that's where the NEP government is pointing at, uh, us, is to high density and favoring these, these um, getting away from single-family detached homes and allowing multiple uh, homes on, on lots usually reserved for just one home. And that's is, Now, is, is there going to be any public pushback on this? We're already seeing some of that in Vancouver. On some of these developments, there's an interesting um, debate today about the proposal in, Ch- in Chinatown Yeah, on Kiefer Street there. We'll see yeah. where that goes. But uh, I think it's going to be probably not quite as easy as EV envisions to get everyone behind this in terms of mass density. Right. And as the, t- the caller just touched on there, too, in Singapore, he's describing like, He's, he called it like higher end housing, like middle class housing mm-hmm. is a lot. EB's talked a lot about that. He's talked about social housing projects that are not for, you know, all for low income. He's talked about like middle income housing. Yes, but so, we're yet to see much of that. Right now, the focus of BC housing is still on sort of social housing for lower income, but we'll yeah. see over time if that shift goes towards the middle income. Yeah. Alan in Nanaimo. Hi, Alan. Go ahead. Good morning. With you, and I also want to touch on EB going to Singapore. There's something much more important that he needs to look at when he's in Singapore, and that is their drug problem or their drug policies. They don't have a drug problem. There's drugs out there, but it's absolutely minimal. They don't have any gangs. They don't have any gang shootings. They don't have very little vandalism. So why, for me, the scourge of our society today here in Canada and in B.C. is drugs even down to housing, is drugs. And it's very destructive here. Singapore does not tolerate it. And it's a very safe, prosperous country with no no resources. So so when you say they don't tolerate it, what, they've got a very strict criminal justice system? Is that what you're saying? Or? They have mandatory sentencing. Yeah, so if, okay. you, if you commit a crime where you're carrying so much of a Class A drug, say, there's a... a Whoever's doing that already knows what that punishment is. Now, in Singapore, they have the death penalty, and I know oh. that's not going to be here. But take a look how many people they put to death in 2022. It's maybe one. It's what? Well, how many? Take a look. One. One. Okay, I will thank Thank you for the call. Thank you for the call. I hate to cut you off. Singapore is a very, very controlled society. It's not a police state, but it's, it's, you know, very tight controls that many people view as anti-democratic. So we're not going to see Singapore justice system brought to Canada.